You're listening to the weekly podcast from Solid Ground Church. We hope that this is uplifting and encourages you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus. If we can be of any help at all, please visit us on the web at solidground.church. Now let's get to this week's message. Good morning. If we haven't met, my name's Bert. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to thank you for getting up. Thanks for uh, joining us today. If you're watching online, thanks for doing that. Uh, and uh, man, we are going to have some fun today because we're kicking off a brand new series called A Thrill of Hope, and we'll get to what that's all about in just a minute. Uh, real quick, just two bits of housekeeping. One, I want to say happy Thanksgiving to you guys. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving this coming uh, Thursday. May may your your uh, pores ooze turkey grizzle, like that you just eat that much. Um, <laughs> that's a weird thing to say now that I say it out loud. Um, <laughs> Do I need to say that again? Um, we'll cut that at 11. Uh, and and uh, also, just want to remind you, like, we're really, really excited to get to bless uh, Seaside Outlets today, and we're going to be packing uh, baskets at, at noon. So listen, if you forgot to bring stuff, we're going to be here. If you want to, when service is done, run out, grab something and bring it back. We're happy uh, to, to wait for you. And I'm, I'm just, I'm so, like, ha- having worked Black Friday in retail and, and like, the crazy day that that is, um, Really excited to get to do that. Um, now, I, I told you, like, we are we are, uh, we are are starting a Christmas series today. I know that for some of you, like, some people are like, Thanksgiving is part of Christmas. Others are very, very stern that, like, no, no, it's a sin to even mention Christmas until after Thanksgiving. To you, I say, watch the Macy's Parade on Thanksgiving because it ends with Santa, so in your face. But... Um, but but we're we're going to um and I think that like Christmas it's a fun time of year like church wise it's really neat because we can begin to like cycle in like this new season like we'll be rolling out Christmas decorations uh, on Christmas Eve we'll be singing uh, Christmas like songs and so if you're curious like when the Christmas hymns are being broken out it's Christmas Eve and today I can tell you when our Christmas Eve services are if you're curious like what time that's happening because if it's Christmas Eve you know the date so here's what our Christmas Eve services are going to be there's going to be three of them on uh, December 24th it's going to be at 3 p.m. 4.30 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. Again, so 3, 4.30, and 6.30 is when our Christmas Eve service are going to be. There's going to be child care at all of them, but I will tell you, uh, you got to be here to experience it. We're not broadcasting them online, um, and if you're curious about why that is, come talk to me after uh, the service, but that, that's when the service or services are going to be on uh, Christmas Eve, and we'll roll out those, those good old Christmas songs. How many of you guys like just enjoy a good Christmas song? Yeah? Yeah. All right. Come on. Yeah. And I, I, there's all kinds of like church ones that are classic, like you gotta hear some Silent Night or, or Christmas Eve just hasn't happened yet. And there's one Christmas song that that's like it's uh it's I call it the great equalizer in church. It's the song when you learn who's got some singing pipes. And it's the song Oh Night Divine. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like you've got this like when you hit that chorus, right? Like, oh night divine. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like and somebody's going for it, right? And you discover quickly who should and should not be in the worship band during that song. Like, that's when you find out. And I like, there's a, there's a line in O Night Divine that's actually the basis for this series where it says, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. In other words, something has happened in the world, something like, like a, a, an unexpected hope, like where the world was so bleak that hope is actually a thrill. It's that that rare, and the world has been so beaten down that the idea there would be any kind of hope, it's a thrill. And believe it or not, that's Bible. Book of Romans says it like this in Romans 8, starting in verse 19, it says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In other words, something has gone wrong in creation. Creation is not as it should be, and none of us are shocked by this. You go outside, you look at the world, Christian or not, and you find things that should not be. The unchristian will sometimes use this to to be angry at God. How could God make a world like this? The Bible answer is that he didn't. When we all know that the world isn't as it should be, and the question becomes, how did it get that way? And to answer that and to understand why this is a massive idea of of thrill or the hope being a thrill and and what even Christmas means, we've got this series where what we're going to do is we're going to unpack one huge story to understand why the world is the way that it is and what God is doing and has started to do and has done about it. And it is a huge story. In fact, it's going to take us four Sundays to tell. So, so if, like, if you're like, man, what's the point? That's just it. Like, the thing I need you to know is like, uh, over the next four weeks, we're telling one big sermon, and we're breaking it up over four weeks because here's what I think. Sometimes like, we don't quite understand the significance of Christmas. Like, we, we are so used to the idea of Jesus being in the world. We never knew a world where he wasn't. And so we don't understand, like, the weight of that. We don't understand what's happened on our behalf. We don't get, uh, like, the full scope and what it means for our lives because it's all we've ever known. It's like this. Have you guys ever ever been to a wedding where you didn't know the couple? You know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, some of you have. Okay, like, I'm a minister. That happens to me a lot. Like, okay, where I, I go to weddings and, like, like, like we kind of have met, right? But that's 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 it. Like, and, and it's nothing wrong with that. It's just, but then you go to a wedding for somebody that you've done life with, and it's a completely different tone. Is it like you both? Yeah, you recognize love, you celebrate love, even if you don't know the couple. But man, if you've been through it with them, if you've seen their highs and lows and how they almost didn't make it and how like they they were going through this or going through that, it changes the entire experience. Of it, And I think the tragedy with Christmas for so many of us is we don't know what's gone into the wedding. We don't know what's happened. Like, okay, say we're getting together with God. Like, what's the significance of that? And, and what was the cost of that? And what was, what was it all about? We only know the wedding itself. And that kind of seems a little bit sad. And so what we're going to do is we're going to tell the story of how things came about in the way that they are. And to do that, we're going to start all the way back in the beginning with the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible when all of this began, when the eternal God who has no beginning and has no end decided to, for no other reason but his love, to create everything that we know. In Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Who did it? God. Was it, was, it, was it random? Was it chance? No, 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 no. There is no random. There is no chance. Hey, every person here, you just need to hear this. You are not an accident. You're here because of God. Verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and we're going to jump forward just a second, but I want you to pay attention to that detail, okay, that God makes the heavens and the earth, but the way that he begins the earth is it's just covered 
in water, and from the water, he's going to raise up land. He's going to raise up life. He's going to raise up vegetation. I just need you to remember that detail because it's going to have a significance. And if you're like, man, why are we even talking about all this? I promise you the reason that we're going to talk about this is because ultimately it's your story and mine. So if you're like, man, what's the significance for me? Just stay with me. There's a payoff. And it would be a tragedy if you didn't know the story of who you are to God. And so we see that God created everything. And, he, you know, he makes life. He makes vegetation. He makes animals. And at the apex of his creation, when he decides, okay, I'm, I've saved the best for last. I've built this kingdom here. He decides to create someone to run it. And so in Genesis 1.26, it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness. So after God's created all the animals and all the vegetation, he goes, I'm going to make mankind, man and woman, I'm going to make them in our likeness. And the hour can be Trinitarian or it could be the sort of royal, like, you know, like when the, the queen says, like, we are not amused or whatever, she's talking about herself, right? It's just like, it's this sort of royal thing, all right? Regardless, here's the idea. There's a lot of debate about this idea, like what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And this is kind of the question. I'm going to walk right into this, Eric, so I'm just going to move your stuff in. I'm sorry in advance. I know how I do. All right, so like what does it mean? I'll fix it later. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Right, and, and there's debate about this. Some people say, all right, to be made in the image of God means that it, it, we have a soul. And like what makes us different from animals is that we, like we are eternal, like we will go on forever because we have a soul or we have a spirit. It's a spiritual component. Could be. Other people say like what it means to be made in the image of God is that we somehow look like God. Could be. But one of the things that we wanted to ask is what would the, like, if we were the first people that Genesis was written to, how would we understand it? I loved, like, Pastor Josh, one of the things he said last week, he said a lot of things that just blew my mind last week. But one of the things that he said last week that I really, really loved was he said he found a lot of freedom in understanding that the Bible was written for him, but not written to him. I love that. That was a great, great, great line. And that's true. Like, listen, like, like the Bible, God has spoken timelessly through it, okay? But it, like, as students of Scripture, whenever we come to passages that are hard for us to understand, that have, like, like, terms that we don't really use anymore, we have to understand that originally it was written to a specific group of people in history. And so if we want to understand, like, the passage, we have to understand how those people would have understood it. So when it comes to this idea of the image of God, how would an ancient Near Eastern Jew understand that term. We actually kind of know. See, this word that, that we translate as, as uh, image, it, it's, the, it's the Hebrew word selem. And it's a word that's oftentimes used in the Old Testament to talk about idols, formed, fashioned representations of deities. See, this thing to understand, like when we talk about idols in the Old Testament, it's not that people, like, like you know, how, like, the Israelites, they're constantly, like, forsaking God and going after idols. It's not that they believe that a piece of wood had power in itself. It's that that piece of wood was a point of contact with the deity. Okay? So here's the idea. When it comes to God's creation of the world, this language, I mean, God, like, God formed and fashioned humankind in his image, any, any ancient Near Eastern person is going to look at that and go, oh, he made an idol. And the idea is simply this, that human beings are God's point of contact with the earth. 
that that's what we were created to be. That like Just like a, a gold statue would be a place where you'd go, and, and if you were in front of that statue, you would meet with the, the one that statue represents. So when it comes to human beings, like, it's our, like the idea of us is that ultimately we are God's point of contact in creation, which is why if God is the king of creation, if he's the one who made everything, if he's the one who owns all of it and oversees all of it, he would entrust it to us to represent him to it. So the very next thing, like here's the context for it. Let us make human beings in our image. Okay, well, what does that image do? Well, here's what it says. It says, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. If God is the king of creation, human beings will rule in his stead. This is why we're different from animals. We know it, right? Like you and I, listen, I can beat a dolphin at chess any day of the week. That's a great joke. Why? Because I've been made more than that. I've been made to represent God and rule over this. And so it says, so God, verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Ladies, holla. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the, the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seed in it. And they will be yours for food. See, listen, God entrusts creation to humanity. If I could say it like this, um, God is the owner of creation. Humanity is the manager. You get this in business sense, right? Like you can have a business where there's an owner and there's somebody they entrust to run the business, the managers, right? That's what we are. The creation belongs to God, but we were entrusted all of this. And for a while, it goes great. For a while, like it says, like like the like the, the man and his wife, they 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 lived in the garden, right? And and they were naked and felt no shame. Like there's there's nothing wrong. Like there's no death. There's no suffering. It's awesome. And they're and they're living with animals in harmony. Like it's really really cool. And in all of this, like God gives them one out. And some people ask me this, like like why would God give them an out? And my response is because love demands an out. If God doesn't give them an out, He doesn't love them. Like if love is forced, it's not love, is it? And so he goes, listen, you can follow me, like you can serve me, you can like rule over my creation, but here's the thing, if there's one thing you can't do, you may not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you do that, you will die. So hey, you can have all of it, the one thing that I ask is that you don't eat that fruit. There's their out. And one day, devil comes in the form of a serpent, and he tempts them. He said, well, did God really say not to eat any of the fruit? They're like, no, no, just, just that one, because we'll die. And he goes, nah, you won't die. You'll just be more like God. Hey, you, if you eat that fruit, you can have what God has. Like, you don't have to be a manager. You can be king. And they go, oh. So it says in Genesis 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to eye. Oh, and by the way, if you're like, man, talking snakes, isn't that weird? We're dealing with the God of the universe. Anything's possible. Just saying. Okay. 
and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So, okay, they choose in that moment to rebel. There's no trickery. Adam was there when he hears all this, and both the man and the woman choose to reject God as king of creation. Again, they were, they were created to represent God in creation, to rule it for him. But when they do that, when they decide, all right, listen, it's going to be our way, not God's, creation breaks. I mean, absolutely, it's devastated. Like, suddenly, like, suffering enters in, death enters in, disease enters in, catastrophe enters in. Like, there becomes relational rifts. There becomes finger pointing at who's good, who's bad. Like, like the, the relational bliss is disrupted. Why? Because something enters in, like, like, they have forsaken what God made them to be. They were made to be the image of God in creation, and they've chosen not to do that. So they want to be God themselves. And creation breaks. Why is the world the way that it is? Why is it there's suffering? Why is it there's disease? Why is it there's calamity? And, and also Because creation is broken. It is not the way it was, it was created to be. And then you reach this point where you've got God, and he's addressing the man and the woman, and the devil in the form of the serpent. And he tells him, like, here's the consequences of what you've done. And he says this weird thing to the serpent. He says in, in Genesis 3:15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, one guy, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, I'm going to do something. I, okay, I'm going to make a guy who's not going to partner in the rebellion with you. I'm going to make a guy, and what he's going to do, and this is really cool to think about, what he's going to do is he's going to crush the serpent's head. In other words, he's going to defeat evil, but this idea of like a serpent striking at his heel, anybody in the ancient areas would understand, like, like when serpents, like, you know, you got a cobra or something, they bite somebody's heel, it's a fatal blow, it kills the person. So what's going to happen? This guy, okay, yeah, you, you're going to, like, he's going to defeat the serpent, but hey, the serpent's going to kill him. Well, who is it? Well, that in introduces the problem of Genesis. The Genesis never really answers. But if, but if, if the man and the woman have forsaken God, here's the question that now comes up. If they have chosen not to, like, represent God in creation, like, the question just sort of lingers in the text, and it's just simply this. Who will be God's image in creation? Who will it be? Who will faithfully rule creation for God, who will faithfully represent him, who will not take part in the rebellion of the serpent? Because here's the crazy part. Listen, there's a guy coming in this text saying who won't sin because to sin is to disqualify. To, to, to partner in the rebellion of the serpent is to disqualify yourself from being the ruler of creation because you've chosen to align yourself with the one who is against God. So whoever this person is going to be, he can't sin. And that is the word. As a result of the rebellion, this thing comes into creation. It's called sin. And that's a, that's a spooky word, isn't it? Because we go like, that involves wrongdoing. It involves, like, personal responsibility. It involves, like, if I say, like, hey, man, I've sinned, what I'm basically saying is, like, hey, it's not, it's not anybody's fault but mine. And so what happens? Well, from there, violence just spreads, doesn't it? 
the man and the woman, they have kids. One slays the other, and so we discover, okay, it's not these guys that are going to be God's image in creation. And it says that violence just fills the whole earth. Why? Because if God is life, if God is peace, if God is love, to reject his way is to embrace everything that those things are not. So violence just spreads through the earth, and time goes on. And we go, well, maybe God will raise up another hope. And so the story introduces us to a guy named Noah. And, and we could wonder, okay, listen, okay, they screwed up. So, so the man and the woman screwed up, and their descendants screwed up. But maybe if we just got a really good guy, like maybe if we, maybe if we just got a guy who, like, who has it all together, who loves God, maybe he'll be the image of God in creation. And so Genesis 6, verse 9 introduces us to Noah and says it like this, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So what happens? God tells him, listen, I'm going to restart creation. You know the story. Noah builds the ark, puts the animals on it. Earth floods, right? Noah, like the waters begin to recede. And then I want you to pay attention. There's, there's something in the, in the language of the story of Noah that many of us miss. It's simply this, that Noah is a story of creation reset. That, okay, man, like maybe what this will be, like maybe human behavior can like fix the problem of the rebellion of the man and the woman. And everything in this story begins to tell us that, no, listen, like what God is showing is something deeper. So for instance, remember back in Genesis 1, how when uh, like God like created life on the earth, how he brought land out of the water? Remember that? Okay, so what happens in Noah? There's the waters covering the earth, and the land comes up out of it. What's God's command to the man and the woman when he makes them, right? He says, like, to be fruitful and multiply. Remember, fill the earth. Remember that? Well, look at God. what God charges Noah with in Genesis 9-1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. It's the same command that was to the man and the woman way back in Genesis 1. And we, we could go on, like there's the Garden of Eden where this whole human fall story takes place, and guess what? Noah has his own garden with a fall. So look at this, Genesis 9, 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. So the very first thing that, God, or that Noah does after God charges him with filling the earth, like, right, like in rebuilding creation, Noah decides to make a vineyard. Verse 21, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. So what do you have? You have a guy who's partaking of fruit in the wrong way and ends up naked. What does that sound like? It's the garden on repeat. And what does he do? Rather than bringing life, he curses his own son when he's hammered. And we begin to understand something with the Noah thing, okay? Noah was a righteous guy, but here's the problem. Noah can't be the image of God because Noah has sinned. And here's what we discover, that it won't be a thing of just be a good enough person because the truth is this, even good, did we lose the screen? All right, we're gonna keep going. Even good people sin. Whoa. And so if you're like, man, like, I don't need God. I'm a really good person. The problem is that you have sinned in your life. You can think of a time where you knew what was good and chose not to do it. And to do that is to partner in the rebellion of the serpent. And what we discover in the story of Noah is that creation itself has been infected, that it's not a behavior thing, it's a condition thing. It's like this. Man, one of the things that we've learned in COVID is the idea of being infected with something and not realizing it. Yes? 
you meet a meeting with a group of people, everybody seems fine, suddenly we're not working for two weeks, right? Why, because somebody coughed? You know what I'm saying? Like, like, this, like one of the, the things of our time that I think is actually kind of incredible to think about is, man, if ever there was a sickness that illustrates sin, it is COVID-19. Basically, you can have this thing, suffer from it, it could kill you, and you won't know that you have it for a while. And people can walk around and not know that they have it for a while. And this is what we discover in the story of Noah. Okay, listen, this is a much bigger problem than behavior. No, humanity has been infected with something. And as a result, we can't not sin. And so the question lingers on. If it's not Noah, if Noah's disqualified himself, we want to ask simply this, who will be God's image in creation? It repeats again in Genesis. I love the way that the guys at the Bible Project sort of summarized this thought. They said it like this. They said, Noah is an early example of this, but God starts another pattern that replays again and again. God's chosen partners fail and repeat the sin of Eden. Even Israel's royal priests and legendary kings prove to be corrupt. All of these human failings are designed to generate an expectation of a coming royal human leader who will bear God's image without corruption, and lead his people into renewed covenant partnership with Yahweh. In other words, every person that you begin to meet in the Old Testament, as good as they might be, is tragically flawed and continues the pattern of sin. And we look at them and we go, there's got to be somebody better. Again and again. My gosh, we could talk about Abraham. How Abraham enjoys friendship with God, and God brings life where there was none from this destitute old couple, Abram and Sarai, and what happens? Abram more than once tries to give his wife away. He, he has a thing with the slave girl, like, no, he's not the guy. We go forward, we can talk about Moses, who's called the servant of God, somebody whom God spoke with face to face as a man speaks to a friend who God used to deliver the entire nation of Israel who came from Abraham. Remember, bring them out of slavery, Moses is faithful to God. He leads him into the wilderness, and what happens? Moses disqualifies himself. He publicly disobeys God. It's not Moses. We talk about our dude, David. Man, we love us some David. We just did a David series. David's the man, right? Man after God's own heart until he spots his friend's wife, sleeps with her, has the husband killed. It's not David. Every person that we meet in the Bible <laughs> up through the, like, the entire Old Testament is a deeply flawed person. Every single one partakes in the rebellion of the serpent, and none of them, none of them is without sin. And so if we're talking about this idea of, like, who will be the image of God? It's going to take someone radically different. Someone's going to have to remove the sin. Someone who's never partaken in it because to partake in it is to partner in the rebellion. No, we need someone to take it away. And this is the thing that we discover, man, like through religion, through all these rites in the Old Testament, through very, very strict religion, you can't scrub yourself clean enough. You can't just decide, all right, now this is my moment where I'm going to get together. This is my, my moment where I'm going to just prove to everybody how good a person I am. This is the moment where God's going to be impressed with me. This is the moment where I'm going to become dedicated enough. I'm going to work really hard to show how good I can be. This is where I'm going to put my best foot forward. It's now when I'm going to sort of pick up the ashes of my life and make myself good enough. It doesn't work that way. You need somebody to save you. Because you, whether you want to admit it or not, are a sinner. 
and so am I. And all of us, there's not a man or woman or child in this building who hasn't sinned. And to do it once is to partake in the rebellion against the king of creation. It's treason. We need someone to save us from our sins, which leads us to Christmas. In the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, there's a story where a poor carpenter finds out that his fiance is pregnant, and not by him. And because he knows what it would mean to divorce her publicly, how she could be killed, she would certainly be humiliated. He decides, all right, I'm just going to break off the engagement quietly. And while he's thinking through that, an angel comes to him in a dream. And he says in Matthew 1.20, Joseph, son of David, or descendant of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Hey, a human being didn't do that. God is bringing life where there was none. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He'll save them from their sins. God has sent someone to fix the problem that you and I could never fix. He sent Jesus to be the humanity that you and I haven't been. Hey, can I just tell you that today? This is not a thing where you get it together and God will love you. No, he sent Jesus for you. You will never measure up. He's not asking you to. He wants to take away your sin, to save you from it to fix this thing that you and I have all joined in and to redeem us from the consequence of death. And so if we were to ask our question way back, if it wasn't Adam, if it wasn't Noah, if it wasn't Moses or David or Daniel or, or anybody, who will be God's image in creation? Paul recognizes this. In Colossians, and he says it bluntly in Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of God, the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that's a term, firstborn doesn't mean that Jesus was created. It means that firstborn is a term of royalty. The idea that he's like the, the, the one who inherits it all, he will be the one that will rule over all creation. Who is the image of the invisible God? Who's the one who hasn't? joined in the evil. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Who is the only one you can hope in? Is it you? No. Is it me? No. Is it church? No. Is it your friends? No. Is it your family? No. Is it your dedication? No. Is it the Bible study that you're part of? No. Is it how much you give? No. Is it how long you've been sober? No. Is it how clean you've been? No. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And here's the cool part. At Christmas time, we celebrate him stepping into the world to save us. So look, as we wrap up, 
Maybe where you are is you recognize that you need him to save you. And you don't know what that means, but you just know, like, man, there's some stuff. Like, I've sinned, and I know it, and like, I need somebody to save me. And that's where you are. I want to give you an opportunity. You don't have to do anything other than ask him to do it. And so today, if you would like to invite Jesus to save you from your sin, every head bowed, every eye closed, here's your opportunity. I want you just to pray right along with me, and here's what we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus for me. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin, but I believe you want to save me. I believe you sent Jesus to die for me, and that you raised him from the dead to give me new life with you. So, Lord, I'm asking you, please take away my sin and save me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.